Good morning. We're excited that you're here today and happy Palm Sunday and welcome. This is a great week. One of the things, if you only come to church on Palm Sunday and Easter, you really don't understand the story of Easter. Because Palm Sunday is this triumphal entry, Easter is the resurrection of Christ, and we don't realize there's a lot that happens in that week. And so today and on uh, Friday night when we have the, the service on Friday night and then Sunday, we're going to go through much of the week of the last week of Jesus' life here, the Passion Week, the week of suffering. Today we're going to look at three vignettes, something that occurred on Palm Sunday, then something that occurred uh, Tuesday, and then something that occurred Wednesday. I'm going to describe it in a few moments, but if you have your Bibles, Elizabeth is going to start in Mark chapter 11, and then she's going to go to two other passages, and they'll be up on the screen. Good morning, church family. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Mark 12, beginning in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came 
with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Thank you, Liz. This is an amazing week in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospels take almost a third of the Gospels, certainly in Mark, it's just about a third, on this one week alone. So as you read the Gospels, you'll read three and a half years in the first two thirds, and then the last third is a week or a week and a half. Some of them start a little before the week. And it's very interesting in what happens. And so what we have here is the triumphal entry uh, that occurs on a Sunday. And he goes in, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Then on Monday, Jesus goes back into the temple and back into the city. Then he comes back out. And on Tuesday, he goes back into the city and comes back out. And then on Wednesday, he does not go into the city. He goes to Bethany, and we'll mention that in just a moment. Thursday, he goes in, and we're going to pick up Thursday on the Friday service. So Thursday and Friday of the week, we're going to talk about that this coming Friday. So today, we're only going to talk about Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And we're only going to take three little vignettes. The first one is the most famous one, which is the triumphal entry. You'll recall that Jesus had been in Jericho prior to this. He had been down in Jericho. Jericho geographically is about 15 miles to the east. It's the lowest point in the world because that's where the Dead Sea is, below 1,000 feet below sea level. Jerusalem's over 2,000 feet above sea level, and it's 15 miles of desert to walk up to it. When you get up there, the first city you get to, it's not a city, it's a town, is Bethany and then Bethage, which is on the Mount of Olives. So that's the first greenery you get to from this desert. Jesus stopped there. He would have gone over the Mount of Olives, which we'll talk about in a minute, gone down into the Kidron Valley and then back up to Jerusalem. So two mountains where Bethany and Bethage is and where Jerusalem is. Now, what's confusing a little bit is there's Bethlehem, Bethany, and Bethage. What on earth is that? Well, Bethlehem is a city or a town. They're all towns. Jerusalem was the only city. Bethlehem is six miles south of Jerusalem. It means the house of bread. Beth means house, like Bethel, house of God. El, um, Bethlehem means the house of bread. 
Then there's Bethany, house of sorrows, and Bethage, house of figs, probably date trees around it. And those two little villages, Bethany and Bethage, are together. And he speaks of them, Mark, that is, speaks of them kind of interchangeably. It'd be very much like talking about sister little towns that are close together that you might have grown up in. You cross the street, you're in one little town. You cross the other street, you're in another village. Very close to each other. And Jesus, going back to Mark 11, if you have your Bibles, gets into Bethage and Bethany in that area, and he sends two of his disciples into the village in front, and not sure whether it was Bethany or Bethage, it doesn't really matter because there were two small villages, and he asks them to do something. He says, basically, steal a donkey, right? Steal a donkey. What is Jesus stealing a donkey for? Well, we don't really understand this nowadays because nowadays, what do we do? Everything's under lock and key. Your car out there, if you drove, is locked, right? Did anybody leave your car unlocked today? Raise your hand. Wow, I love it. Those are the ones that want it stolen so they could get their insurance money. I used to leave the keys to my car on the hood in hopes that it would get stolen, my old car, years and years ago when I was young. But we don't do this. We lo- how many, I hope, did you lock your house or apartment when you left today? Of course you did. We lock, 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 and we don't give anything. But let me tell you, it wasn't always that way. I remember just a couple of years ago, about 15 years ago, I was speaking up at Palm Beach, the island of Palm Beach, and I'm driving up there, And as I cross over the bridge onto the island of Palm Beach, my car conks out. Just goes totally dead, nothing. So I called the tow truck, which got there immediately, and I said, take it to the dealer. It was still under warranty. I said, take it to the dealer. And I thought, how am I going to get the other mile? It was hot, summer. I'm thinking I got to speak soon. So I called the guy up that I'm speaking for. I didn't really know him. They invited me to speak to this group. I said, I'm at this corner. Can you come pick me up? He said, yeah, sure. Picked me up, went and spoke. Now I'm thinking, how on earth am I going to get home? It was before Uber. So I said, how am I going to get home? I'm thinking this. And he said, he said, why don't you take my car? I said, okay. He goes, I'm going out of town for a week. And this is what he said. Now, we're in a theater. It wasn't a church. It was a theater that wasn't being used during the day. So we did this study at lunchtime. He goes, bring the car back anytime during the week and leave the key on the tire. You know, the tire. And And his car didn't have one of those covers over the tire. So you could see it. I said, you want me to leave the key on the tire for a week? He goes, yeah, nobody will touch it. I said, in a theater parking lot. He goes, yep, nobody will touch it. And you know what? I went home. Next day, got one of my kids to drive, us, drive behind me, went back, put the car in the theater parking lot, left the key on the tire, and it was there a week later when he went to pick it up. Those days have gone. Don't do it. <laughs> but when Jesus' two disciples said, we'll bring it back, you know, they actually believed him. And he did bring it back. You see, there was a time when your word meant something. I'm going to take, but I'm going to bring it back. We'll bring it back tomorrow or the next day. We'll bring it back because they knew they were going to come back to Bethany or Bethage, whichever town it was. They were going to be back even that very night. They were going to use it for the day and we'll bring it back. And they believed it. So a lot of times we go, oh, this can't be true. Let me tell you, it's true. And even today, I mean, it's amazing how we loan things to people and don't even think about it, right? 
You go to Meisner Park, and what do you do? You give your keys to some 18-year-old, don't you? And they don't even hand you a piece of paper anymore. They say it's on the web. I go, I want a piece of paper that at least I can prove that you have my car. And an hour and a half later, you come back, and that car comes back. I mean, there is still trust in this world to a, a greater extent than we let on. But there was incredible trust here. And Jesus gets on that donkey or colt. Now, what's interesting is it wasn't a horse. Some people say, oh, a, a colt can be a horse. And you're right, it can be a horse. But here's the difference. In the Roman world, when someone rode a horse into the city, into a walled city, they were conquering the city. They were the conqueror, they were the general, they were taking it over, and there are many examples throughout the Roman Empire of when this occurred. When the king was coming into town, or the emperor, or the prince, or the governor was coming into town, they came in a donkey, or on a donkey. The donkey showed royalty, a horse showed conquering and power. Jesus came into Jerusalem because he was bringing in a new kingdom. He was not trying to take over the old kingdom. It's very important why Jesus does certain things. He's not there taking the old kingdom over. He's starting a new kingdom. We learn this later in the week when we come to it further in the week. It's an incredible thing. And so they put uh, their coats or cloaks on top of the colt, because there's no saddle. He rides it in, and as he's going in, why is it called Palm Sunday? They put down palms, they put down um, cloaks. Again, we're in a city that does figs, so there are date palms. We think of coconut palms, but more likely they were date palm fronds, and they were laying those date palm fronds down kind of as a um, carpet, a red carpet almost, as we might think of it, that Jesus could go. And this was a pretty long journey. It was from the east side of the Mount of Olives, over the Mount of Olives, down all the way to the Kindron Valley, and then probably down the valley a little, and then back up. It took a long time, and they're celebrating, and what are they saying? They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quote from Psalm 118. It's a praise that David and the children of Israel sang many, many times throughout the history of the Old Testament, praising and understanding that the Lord is going to come. And this is what they were singing. They weren't just singing a simple song, and we sing those songs now, and we just kind of flip off our our mouths and don't think about it. They were thinking that the Messiah is coming. Now, these people are actually doing it. And he gets there, goes all the way down. This takes all day. We don't know when they started, but by the end of the day it goes, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, verse 11 of chapter 11, and when he had looked around at everything. Let's just pause there. Remember, we think Jesus was in Jerusalem all the time. He spent most of his three and a half years of ministry in Galilee, he would come down to Jerusalem from time to time in the festivals, but he was, it was not like he was in Jerusalem every day. He came, he observed, he prayed. Other times he prayed and wept over the city. We know all that. That's not in this passage here. And then it was already late, so it took all day. And then he went out and repeated it all the way back again back to Bethany. 
So he went all the way down, back up, it's kind of like a big M, and went all the way back down and back up to Bethany. That's the end of Sunday of Palm Sunday. Then on Monday, he goes back into the city. We're not going to talk about it today, but on Monday, he goes back into the city and he cleanses the temple. You remember that whole story? It's a great story. It's in chapter 11, starting in verse 15, and keeps going, and he talks about that. I'm not going to talk about that today. We've done many of talks on the cleansing of the temple, and he does that. Then he comes back out and goes back to Bethany and Bethage, so he makes that big loop again. We all think he spent the whole week in Gethsemane. He didn't. He went back to Bethany, and now it's Tuesday, and he goes back in. And that's where we pick up the story and move to chapter 12, verse 41. We've been reading in our devotional. I hope you've all been using the devotional. And if you haven't been, there's a few more out there. You can get it and just do it on your own level. We're in week two, just finishing week two today. And we have our third week of the 21 days starting tomorrow and it ends at Easter. But it takes us through Mark, and we've already been through some of these things I've been talking about. But Jesus talks and, and gives some sermons and speaks, and he's all throughout the temple all day long. And then it's kind of towards the end of the day, I believe, and he's sitting there, and he's sitting next to where they put the money in, the offerings. So very much like we have offering boxes in the back and in the lobby and up here, we have offering boxes. They had an offering box and it was actually called a shofar box. A shofar is um, the horn of a ram and they got it cleared out. A lot of times they would blow it as a horn at different festivals and different times at Joshua and the Battle of Jericho and different times. But also they would take the one that was rounded like the the sheep horns that were more rounded, and then at the bottom they would put a box. So you put your coin in, and it would go cling, right? You ever did that with kids with the gumballs, and you put a quarter in, and a gumball comes out, all those kind of things. So they do that, did it because it was hollow, and you could hear the quality of the coin. So you guys over here, I always make fun of you, so you guys had those gold coins, over here, and you're putting those gold coins in, and you have silver over here, not quite as good, and you have those little copper things and little plated things, and you could hear it. It was tinny, or it was solid, or it was really solid. So I didn't even have to pull out my money and show you. I could even do it quietly, and you'd still know how much money I gave. Because the other thing you would do is you would drop it in, Loud, 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 drop another one in, drop another one in. So everybody's watching and seeing how much you're giving. And Jesus is sitting across from that, and he's doing that. It's an amazing thing. He sat across opposite the treasury, and the treasury, again, is the shofar box, and it went into some lock box at the bottom, and watched the people putting the money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two copper coins, also known as mites, M-I-T-E-S, the widow's mite, which make a penny. Now, this is interesting, little sidebar, totally for those of us who geek out on these kind of things, is a denarius was a day's wage. A mite 
or what she gave, she gave two of them, but one of them was 1 64th of value of a day's wage. Okay, now this was written in Rome, the book of Mark, and the Romans didn't have that. They had one to a hundred. They had pennies, not mites. So he said it's about a penny. A penny is one hundredth of their value as opposed to one sixty-fourth. So just as I know it means nothing except it's very, very little. Now think about it. A day's wage back then was about a dollar. It's a dollar a day economy. The whole world has lived on a dollar a day economy for thousands of years. It's just in the last 200 years that we moved to $10 a day. And then what, just think about what you make a day and you are that much more than what they made. But it was a dollar a day economy, which meant if you didn't make your wage today, you didn't eat tonight. And if you didn't make your wage tomorrow, you were not eating tomorrow night. It's day wage. That's what they said. It's kind of a day laborer. You got paid every day. Jesus did some um, parables about day wages as well for another time. And he called his disciples and said to them, truly I say to you, verse 43, this poor widow has put more than all those who are contributing in the offering box, for they have all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put everything she had, all she had to live on. Let me give you three quick thoughts on this. Number one, it's not the portion you give, but it's the proportion you give. And so when you see somebody give, you cannot make any analysis of how good that gift is because it's not the portion that is given, it's the proportion that is given. The second part is, Jesus sees what we give. Jesus sees it. And it even goes to Jesus knowing why we have given. Jesus knows why we have given, and those of us who had the money, you guys over here, you put it in and you gave out of your abundance so that everybody could see and hear how much you gave. She gave everything she had. Her proportion was far greater, even though it was 1 64th of a denarius. They were giving gold coins, which might have been 10, 15, 20, 100 denarius. It's pretty amazing, the economic disparity but yet God speaks more highly of the widow than she does of the wealthy. It doesn't mean that widows who are poor are better than wealthy who have money, but what it means is we all have to understand that our giving should be proportionate, not just portional. So when I see someone giving, I go, oh, I give what they gave. That means nothing because God knows why you gave. Now let's keep this story going because You've got to juxtapose, remember I talked about juxtaposing last week, putting two things that are very conflicting next to each other. So when we go to chapter 14, there's another woman. Now, it's Wednesday, two days before the Passover. They're back in Bethany. So Tuesday's done, it's back in Bethany. He doesn't go, we don't know of any evidence that he went to the temple on Wednesday. We think he stayed in Bethany and Bethage during that day. And this is what happens in verse three. 
Oh, let me start in verse 1, by the way. It's interesting. In verse 1, the, the um, Jewish rulers want to make sure, want to kill Jesus, sorry. So they're plotting Jesus' death just before Mark tells us about what this woman did. And right afterwards in verse 10, Judas is plotting to betray Jesus so that they can kill him. So the scribes want to kill him, the Jewish rulers want to kill him, and Judas is the way they're going to do it in terms of identification and betrayal. And in the middle of this, Mark puts a story about a woman and money. And he goes in verse 3, and while Jesus was in Bethany, he's in the house of Simon the leper. Let us not miss the thought here, Simon the leper. Do you know anything about leprosy? We have people in here that know a lot about leprosy, but leprosy was something that you put people aside for. It was highly contagious. People, you didn't go to a leper's home. So what's interesting is the leper was no longer a leper. He was just identified by his former status of being a leper because no one would have been in his home if he was still a leper because they would have gotten the disease of leprosy. And leprosy is the disease of the nervous uh, functions which causes you to lose feeling in your fingers and your toes and thus you end up losing those fingers and toes because without feeling you can't feel heat. I've been in leprosy colonies many around the world and most of the older people in lepers older is usually in their 20s because they die by the time they're 30, is they have nothing but stumps as hands. I was in one in India one time that almost destroyed me. I think it did destroy me. And they were believers, and they're singing and clapping like this. It was just amazing. I thought, how can you clap? It's an amazing thing. So Simon, we're in his house, Jesus is in his house. He's obviously, although it's not said, but he, I bet, you know, I'm not a betting guy, but I believe that Jesus healed him at some point earlier in Jesus' ministry because we're going to his house. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And he's still called the leper. I know some of you, this is interesting, and we don't call you this, but I know some of you who have recovered from something. You can tell me how many days you have been recovered. I've talked to people that have said, it's been 800 days since I have recovered. It's been six years since I last took that drink. It's been five years since I last took that drug. They know when they have been recovered. But we don't say nowadays, build the drunk when you've been recovered or Susie the alcoholic, but they did say Simon the leper. And a part of it is to show that they had been healed from leprosy. And it's a beautiful thing. So there he is, he's healed, and we're in his home, and they're having dinner of all things. He was reclining at a table, which meant they were probably having dinner, which would you have dinner at a very unclean place in terms of health unclean? No, you wouldn't. So Simon's doing great. And a woman comes with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard. It's this huge perfume, pure nard. It's just the purest of it, very costly, and she broke it. There were some who said indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? 
Now, how much was this ointment worth? Here's the economics. It said 300 denarius, right? Now, what is a mite? One sixty-fourth of a denarius. Now, let's bring it to modern times, your modern thinking. That flask was worth $50,000, and the mite was worth two to three dollars. If you bring it into the economics of today, what the lady gave at the, into the shofar box was about two or three dollars, all she had in her life left, in modern terms, if it were today, and what this other lady who's unnamed poured open onto Jesus was $50,000. So you can see why they said, we're wasting our money. Isn't that interesting? Here's the beautiful thing. At the end, let me go to the end before. Verse nine, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in her memory. I'm like, I'm fulfilling the scriptures today because I'm telling you about her memory 2,000 years later. Now, here's the thing. We don't know either lady's name. It's not important that we know their name. It's important what they did, isn't it? And so let's look. Can I give you some application to this? Number one, there are two spheres in which we live and they cannot be separated, the physical and the spiritual. People go, well, should I give to the poor? No, I should only give to the church or should I only help believers or should I help those who aren't followers of Jesus? You know, kind of the physical and the spiritual and we kind of move from side to side and I only wanna help spiritual or I only wanna help the physical needs and we don't do one but we do the other. They are inextricably brought together. How do we know this? Luke 16, just write this verse down. It says, if then you have not been faithful in your wealth, the unrighteous means just in your regular wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? In other words, if you can't do with your wealth, how can you be entrusted with the spiritual? Usually we say you've got to be spiritually right to get it physically right. And here, Luke is telling us that Jesus said, you got to get it right physically to be right spiritually. What does that mean? They're both inextricably brought together. Number two, what the women had, they gave. What the women had, they gave. So the one gave one sixty-fourth of a day wage, which is somewhere around $2 in today's economy, if you take the average and all the rest. What you have, you need to do something with. See, here we need to take it to the next step. How do I apply what these two women did? Because some of us say, I don't have this huge amount of resources like that one lady had. I don't have it, so I can't give it. And some of the others of you say, I only have a little resource. I can't give it. Do you see the difference? 
I get this by everybody. Some people say we have so much money we can't give it, and some people say we have no money and we can't give it. The Bible says give it and do something with it. And then you go, it's not just about money, it's about other things. So this week, uh, Elizabeth and I have been doing some reading and um, somehow we've been getting back into World War II reading. You know, I, I talked about Corrie ten Boom a few weeks ago and I started reading about her again and we, we started reading about Anne Frank and about just Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the whole thing and we were kind of getting back into that. And when we were in Israel a couple of weeks ago, there's a part of Israel that we take everybody to that is really not a part of the normal tour, and that is the Holocaust Museum. It's called the Yad Vashem. It is an incredible place that I can't even speak of without crying. So I've been there so many times, I don't go in it. I've stopped going in it, into the displays. Where I do go is above the displays, it's on a hill, so it's all multi-story, but on the top of the hill, on top of these buildings is a big plaza, and in the plaza are trees. I've shared with these trees, and I walk among the trees because in those trees are little nameplates of people who saved Jews in World War II. So I see the Oscar Schindler tree, and I see the Raoul Wallenberg tree, and I see the Ten Boom family tree, and I just walk. I mean, it's hundreds, probably thousands of trees, and it's either a family, an individual, a city, a church, could be anything, and I just walk through there, and while everybody else is seeing all the heinous things that happen, I go up and look at all the good things that happened, and I just cry for an hour and a half and meet them at the bus. Well, there's a new person I had never heard of. His name is Aristide de Sousa Mendes. He was Portuguese. He was a low-level diplomat from Portugal working in France in 1939 and 40. He was a Christian, an ardent Christian, a devoted Christian. He had no money, he was just way down the totem pole. And if you're familiar with France in 1939 and 40, the, the Nazis were coming into France, but they were coming in through the north. Spain and Portugal are in the south. So all the people were fleeing Paris and the cities of the north and going to the cities of the south. And there was this huge highway of people. Some had cars, some had bikes, most were walking. Some tried to cart their, their luggage and their furniture, which was totally ridiculous, but they didn't have a clue that it was. And down in the south in Bordeaux and Dijon, some of these other places, were tens of thousands of people trying to immigrate into Spain and Portugal. And they shut the border because Spain and Portugal were neutral. And it was the way to get to the new world was to get to Spain and Portugal. If you ever saw Casablanca, you'll remember that story, the transit to get to Portugal. So they couldn't get there. Mendez and his wife decided that they were gonna do something about it. And all the people, not all, thousands of people assembled in line in front of the consulate of uh, Portugal in Bordeaux and they shut the doors. And he went out and this is what he said. I have it all in my hands now to save the many thousands of persons who have come from everywhere in Europe 
in the hope of finding sanctuary in Portugal. I've read this 20 times, sorry. They are all human beings. From now on, I am going to issue a visa to anyone who asks for it, regardless of whether or not they can pay. If you're familiar, people would bring bags of gold to buy their visa. And he says, I don't want your gold. I don't want your silver. I don't want your furniture. I just want you to do that. I know that Mrs. D'Souza Mendez agrees with me, and I feel certain that my children will understand and not hold it against me if, by giving a visa to each and every refugee, I am discharged tomorrow from my duties for having acted contrary to the orders, which in my estimate are vile and unjust. He lost his job, lost his money, died in poverty in the early 1950s, by the way, until in the 1960s, he was recognized by Israel and then finally by the United States, by Brazil, and by Portugal. Here it is. This is what he said last. He said, I would rather stand with God against people than with people against God. I would rather stand with God against people than people against God. He had no money, he had nothing but a stamp. Nothing but a stamp. And he stamped 30,000 people's lives to get into Spain to Portugal. He is recognized as having personally saved more people in the Holocaust than any other individual. He's a low-level consulate worker. All he had was a stamp. No money, no status. He went against what he was supposed to do. But I tell you, every one of us have something. I don't know what it is. You might have 30 kids in a classroom. And you go, all I have is the third grade, 30 kids. You might go, all I have are four great-grandchildren, and I'm an old man. All I have is this. All you have with God is a lot. And no one can say, this is all I have, because all God wants is this. And he'll take this and turn it into incredible things. And this is what we see. To this day, I'm talking about a lady who gave $3. And we're talking about a lady who gave $50,000. I don't know what you have. I don't know where you have it. But God has given you something that you need to give away this week. And it's not just money. It's influence. It's opportunity. It's the gospel. Whatever it is, Look at it, look at your life and go, I am going to give it away this week. Don't say later on, because later on, who knows? You're gonna be thinking about other things. Don't say next year, don't even say next month. Just say this week, what is it that I can give away in the name of Jesus Christ and allow Christ to use it? Because the beautiful thing is, Christ took a little rubber stamp, and 30,000 lives were saved. One of those lives was Salvador Dali and his wife. 
One of those slides was a guy who just wrote a book, 1939, hadn't published it, had it, and the only thing he was able to bring in his little satchel was a book that he had written. It hadn't even been published. His name was H.L. Ray, R-E-Y, I believe. His uh, given name was George, and the book was called Curious George. Did you ever read Curious George as kids? That man was saved by Mendez Sosa. Uh, the list of people, I can't even tell you, there's so many of people in the United States that you would have heard of in the 1940s and 50s who were saved in the early 1940s who were either French or Danish, excuse me, Dutch or whatever coming down. And this guy did it with a little rubber stamp. The widow had two copper coins. Mendez had a rubber stamp. The other lady had a lot of money. I don't know what you have, little or much, but in God's hands, it will accomplish much. Do you believe that? Because that which is spiritual and that which is physical come together, and in some way, God does a beautiful thing. This, to me, is the beginning of the story of the Passion Week. And as we understand the rest of the Passion Week, come on Friday night. It's an amazing time. Uh, Bill Hood and Francois and others will be, and Brian will be leading it, and they'll be taking us through the Passover, the Last Supper, communion, what happens in the Garden of Eden, all that leading up to the cross. It's so important. That is the core of the gospel. I'm kind of giving you the, the pretext to the core of the gospel. It's the core of the gospel that comes. And then next week, at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock, we'll be here to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? So two things as we close. Number one, invite somebody for next week. Maybe the person that's in your Bible that you're praying for. Maybe somebody else, a coworker, a family next door, someone you don't know well. Just invite them. If they're going to come to church, it's most likely they might come at Easter, Christmas and Easter. You know, we mock people that are Christmas, Easter comers. I love people that come at Christmas and Easter because they get to hear the gospel. And number two, do you truly understand what the gospel is? Do you understand what this whole purpose of this week is? Why do we even commemorate it and celebrate it? Because it leads on Friday and then on Sunday to the death of Jesus Christ because of our sin. Jesus died because of our sin. And then he conquered the death and conquered it all and rose from the dead three days later on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, those many years ago. So let's bow our heads and pray.